welcome to all our listeners to FERT Focus. We are thrilled to have Georgie Galloway with us from the GS Marshall Farm down in Invercargill. Now those of you who have seen our case studies and follow uh, the information that we put up on our website will know that we popped down and saw Georgie last year about the same time. We're here and it's uh, mid-April and we spoke to her about what she's doing on farm um, uh, down here in Invercargill in Southland. So Georgie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and I'm joined by Michael Smith as usual. Um, so yeah, we're here to have a chat and a catch up and, and kind of get progress uh, a report, I guess, on, on where you're at, what you're doing and how things are going for you. Now, Georgie, um, I guess the first place to start is tell us a bit about the farm, what you're doing now. Give us a quick catch up on where you were at, um, you know, at the beginning of the, of the story uh, before we came to see you last time. Um, just for those listeners who perhaps haven't seen the case study videos and caught up on that yet. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm Georgie, yeah, farm manager for Graham Marshall and Gail Lilly. Uh, we're about 20 minutes west of Invercargill. Um, yeah, and our our farm, um, we winter, our main thing is wintering 1,500 dairy cows, and we do that on cow and baleage. We also milk 50 cows, which we rear 400 Frisian bull calves on. Um, and we also do a bit of... Um, Sheep trading, so I do some store lambs in winter time just to keep the quality of their grass up, and that's on 160 hectares of pretty flat land. Nice one. So, Georgie, when we came to see you, you'd sort of um, started to sort of change things up a little bit and do things differently. You'd started down the path of uh, biostimulants and, and things like that. Can you tell us a bit about the system that you were running prior to that change and the reason that you made those changes? About four years ago, the farm was pretty conventional, um, you know, doing winter crops and grass and everything that goes along with that, um, and doing, you know, applying pretty standard um, amounts of fur, you know, a lot of urea, a lot of DAP. Um, yeah, and so we got our main trigger to look for something different was um, in, it was about March, and we got halfway through doing a five hectare paddock of kale with 100 kilos of urea, and um, we thought, yeah, we'll notice that there's a change, it's not gonna grow as well, so on and so forth. Um, a few months later, you know, when the girls were about to turn up, there was absolutely no difference in kale growth. Um, so yeah, from that point on, we thought, well, we need to take ownership of what is going on here, um, and so that started us down the journey. Um, we started looking at, yeah, like you say, biostimulants. Um, so the product we're using at the moment is fish it. Um, it's local from salmon from just off Short Island. Um, and they process that up and you can buy it in a thousand litre pod. Um, and we just apply that through the time first. Um, what we're doing is about 90 litres a hectare over three applications for the grass. And it's about five or six applications with the kale. Um, and yeah, once we once we started looking for change, then it really came fast to us. Um, really opened our eyes to so much different stuff. And lately, we've sort of looking at different ways we can, you know, do this what everyone's calling regen ag. Um, and yeah, it's it's quite exciting. Yeah. It's, so you you mentioned it sort of came on quite fast. What what do you mean by that? Can you be a bit more specific? What came on fast? Was there a change in the farm? Was there um, noticeable differences that you saw? Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? So I'm really lucky to have really good employers. Um, so me and Graham work together every day, um, and he's you know 60, getting towards retirement, but still has a huge passion for farming. Um, and with my more youth, I guess you could say, and the energy and asking the questions, that's led us, and it's, he's loving it too, just, just looking for different things. Um, and I'll tell him YouTube videos to watch and he gets right into it. And so that's, that's a big part of us is that we're a team and we're looking, we're looking for the future. And so from that, um, with coming back to getting the time fit, um, we started to notice the, the grass pasture was changing. Um, we started using an aerator. And then th about three years ago, we started doing uh, oat, sort of a catch crop, but also to get um, more baleage. Um, so off 20 hectares the last three years, 
after three years of a kale crop, we've been getting a thousand bales of oat silage, whatever you want to call it, um, and that's that's really changed our system, and that's meant that instead of sowing young grass in December when the soil conditions aren't quite right for the grass but they're perfect for weeds, we were just having just weeds coming out of our ears and we didn't really have the stock on that time of year because obviously we do the winter grazing and then over the summer time we don't really have much stock on and then we get the lambs again in winter or come you know in autumn. So there was we were trying to bale this wet slimy weed grass um, but yeah, so now with the oats, we can, you know, get a decent, we more or less let it get up to that cheesy phase, which is, you know, metre high, quite quite, um, quite high in fibre, so it's good for the winter cows too. Um, sort of keeps them munching all day. And yeah, and then in, you know, late February, March, we're planting um, young grass and we're getting some really good results with that. And it's less favourable for the weeds and we also have some lambs on just to nibble it off when it gets to that six, eight weeks of growth and we're getting really nice tillers coming out of that as well. So you've just come through a drought down here in uh, Southland and obviously it's been a, a bit of a tougher season, would that be a fair, to, fair, fair sort of assumption? Yep, I think you could say that. Um, again, we're quite lucky we don't have the stock on in summertime. Um, but the biggest place where we've noticed it is on those the paddocks that are doing their first year in kale. So they've they've been five years in grass, and then they've just been sprayed off and direct drilled with kale. The, I managed to get two paddocks aerated the previous autumn, so in autumn, and then they get sown out the following spring in kale. I only got two paddocks done out of four and the two paddocks that have been aerated, they are bale height, so you know, they're probably 12, 13 tonne already, um, but the paddocks that weren't aerated, they, they're only half bale height. Um, so those, those paddocks that haven't had the aeration, they've struggled in the dry because you know, the roots aren't getting down, the soil's not working the same. Um, and as for the grass, um, it, it's still kept on growing. Um, we went between the second and the third cut was eight weeks. We had not much rain, pretty hot, and we still got um, 300 bales of baleage off after that eight weeks, which was the very end of March. So the soil is definitely working for us, um, yeah, with, with doing the aeration and the fish and little and often with fertiliser and yeah, it's, it's, it's been dry, but we definitely haven't, haven't suffered as much as most. So a little while ago when we came to see you last I think you'd mentioned that you for the first time or maybe the second year you didn't have to bring in or buy in any baleage, additional baleage, is that still the case this year? Yeah, yeah that's still the case, yeah so yeah and just because we've got those healthier soils they do keep working in that drier time and we're getting those oat crops as well so that's that's boosting that um, but yeah it's, it's, it has still gone pretty well even though it's been dry. So Mike, you first met Georgie, what, a couple of years ago now, would it be? Field days, was it? I met you at the field days or just Graham? I think it was I think just it Graham. Was Graham. I think just yeah, Graham and I met Graham Georgie. at the field days um, and he basically ordered his time for it that day and I met Georgie a few weeks later when we delivered it. Well, I think technically you just bought the demo model and I got oh, halfway through a paddock and we have two-way radios and Graham had his on and I knew Mike was beside him and I said, hey Graham, can we keep this thing? Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that was that, it never left the game. Oh, is that yeah. right? Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, good heavens. So what first then drew you? Because obviously in my seat, I turned to you to say, Mike, we, we want to tell some stories. Who have we got out there? And on this particular occasion, um, we were looking for um, uh, some women to tell some stories of, of what they were doing in the uh, in the farming world and you were straight on to Georgie just like that so what what kind of I guess drew you to this to to what she's doing and what uh, Graham and the farm are doing there um, uh, as opposed to someone else what yeah. what what really excited you about that um, probably the dynamic between Graham and Georgie it's the two stories were opposite so Graham was a real traditional man and you could see he was a bit hesitant about changing and Georgie was passionate about changing. So that that was at the start, I, I was quite intrigued about that, thinking, well, how's this gonna go? But um, but watching that journey and, and seeing how not 
just how Graham's changed to come on board and he's fully behind it 100%. If Georgie says Graham jump upside down in the grass will go, Graham will do it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not only just that, but also seeing where the farm come from. Like I remember the day I brought the demo, the farm was quite yellow, it was struggling, um, and they had a plan. So that's, I think, right then you were working for a different company doing marketing for us, and I said to you, we need to follow this because it's, yep. if, if it comes off like Georgie says it's gonna come off, it's a bloody good story. <laughs> and pretty much it has pretty much followed what she wanted, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do remember that conversation as well, and, and I think when we came down here last year, uh, I remember very clearly the enthusiasm that um, we got from Georgie, but also, the enthusiasm that clearly, I hadn't met Graham at that point obviously up until then, um, the enthusiasm that then came from Graham as yep. well. Um, and the story he told that you've told this, this evening as well, Georgie, already about the, the, there being no difference or no noticeable difference in the kale growth that had applied, was it urea or was it lime? Yeah, it was no urea, urea yeah. and, and the, uh, where they'd run out and not applied yep. urea. Um, you know, is, is really quite an interesting story about how old dogs can you know, learn new tricks, so to speak. Yeah. But that's, I see that passion in Graham now, like he breeds off it. It's yeah. like he's not a young fella, and he, he's like this morning I went there to have a check over their time and do a repair on it. Which I broke. 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> and would you believe, she broke it, and Mike saw something he has never seen before <laughs> on a toe and fit. So Georgie wears that as a badge of honor now. <laughs> yeah, but like I rock on the gate just after 7.30 in the morning, Graham is at work. And he's got a spring in his step, and he stands around and he wants to tell stories and talk about what's happening. He's pretty passionate about what's happening now, and he's willing to tell people. I seen clients there to look at the machine, and they said, Georgie was good, but Graham don't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> don't let Graham listen to this, Georgie. <laughs> I do sometimes have to say, right, let the people go now. <laughs> yeah, but that's how passionate he is, and like to find an old an older generation farmer that has been very traditional for years because that's what their dad did and that's what they've been taught by the Muppets to do. Um, then he's not now. He's he's t telling me today these stories that they're looking at doing this and they're looking at changing to this and if this person changes to this company he's going with them and if this happens that happens and, and like he's he's full into it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Eh? That is pretty cool. So, Georgie, if we drill down then into your system a little bit more, um, you've mentioned that you started with the fish uh, hydrosylate. Oh, I can never say that word, but never mind. I think people will know what I mean. And um, you've obviously sort of developed your own kind of brews over time. I know when we came down and see, uh, saw you last April, you were putting the fish on with a little bit of urea. The first two years, because we so much stuff changed we were just trying to get our head around that and we sort of um we'd try something and then like i know for two sort of over christmases the weather was a bit average and graham and gail had been away for one and they sort of had missed that observation that the kale needed something at that from pre-emerge to canopy and when it when the, the weather can still be a bit brutal um and so then that sort of delayed that learning by a year because I could tell Graham what the weather conditions were like and why it hasn't canopied because there's, we need to have a little bit of kale like Sharia, so you need, we need to have some in there. But it wasn't until the following um, Christmas period that he was on the farm and so he's seen that same result. So for us, um, like I say, the transition has been fast, but the, the perfecting it has been, has taken um, sort of, you know, this this would be our our where we want to be yeah, like um, getting more routine and you know, because with with us putting on liquid um, liquid products are on the kale, I'm putting on 20 kilos of urea and 20 litres of fish every three to four weeks, um, just to give it that little boost and to also help with insects um, and just to keep it nice and healthy and so. Last, um, you know, last summer we sort of came up with that, and then this summer it's been so easy to implement that. And even um, I think it was from at canopy time, I was I'd waited four weeks for when I was going to do the little bit of urea and the little bit of fish, but at about three weeks I could see it was going a bit yellow, so I was 
it, it needed that just a little bit sooner so then on the feed after that one when it would sort of had almost was sort of starting not die but not looking as healthy so then for the following feed then I cut it back to three weeks because I'd observed that that was what it needed that in that heavy heavy growing stage it just needed it couldn't wait four weeks it wanted three weeks and so that's also a big part of our system is that we have all our own gear. So you mentioned gear but it's it sounds to me that it's all about observation isn't it it's about looking yeah. and seeing what the product needs at a particular not what the product but what the plant needs sorry yeah. at a particular time in the environmental cycle whatever that may be given seasons change. So where do you find yourself now um, heading into your wintering season and your growth rates and your cows sort of coming in what are we uh, just over a month now um, where do you find yourself sort of sitting are you on track to where you want to be given the droughts given the situations what where are you at yeah so probably you know we're possibly better than most um, some paddocks we would want a little bit more crop in it um, you know they might be sitting at 10 ton and at the moment we would probably like 12 ton but at the same time um, in winter time the girls get fed really well anyway so if there's just that little bit less kale they'll still will be getting fed good they just won't be getting fed that whole bit extra um, but we do have um, we, every year we get about 80 bales of straw so if we need to you know every second day just give the girls a little top up um, we do uh, we do block feeding um, and we measure it all out so it's all it's all set from right when we do the first cut of baleage we put the bales out as we go and we, it's, it's quite different, it's quite complex, um, but the, our, our square meterage is set from, we don't change it, so all we can do is change numbers, cow numbers in the break, um, or we can, if, say if it's a really good crop, we could take a bale of baleage out every second day, or if it's a poor crop and we've got 100 cows in there, every second day we can add in a little bit of straw. So that's where Graham's, you know, his, his knowledge um, helps to be able to make my ideas come off that yeah we've always we've always got that little bit extra up our sleeve because we are Southland and we are wintering outside so yeah we've got to have we've got to have options and and yeah we might we might need to tap into those options a little bit more um, this year but hopefully not too much. So if we touch on the observation side of things again, um, how have you learned that the iometer is actually a successful or a, a really effective way of assessing your farm? We hear a lot about science and obviously science is important, but if we continue to wait for science, nothing ever gets done. I mean, let's face it, you know, science tends to follow what is happening rather than necessarily inventing something or, or, or trying to uh, come up with something new. So how, how have you learned to trust yourself that actually what you're seeing is in fact, and the results that you're able, or the products that you're able to apply are actually going to do the job for you? What's the process or, or what is it that you have gone through to get to that point? So I think the biggest thing would be that we've been, we were putting on a lot of fertiliser, a lot of everything, and then we sort of cut back quite a bit. So by doing that, there's still room if we wanted to use a bit more urea, use a bit more of this, bit more of that, we still can. So that's probably, um, you know, like if, if I'm, so we don't, we don't get in a helicopter or anything like that. Like I was, I was driving through the kale just the other day, giving it just that little bit of fish, little bit of urea after not giving it a feed for two months because we didn't have any rain. So there was just no point in going out there. Um, so from, you know, I'm driving through it and some of it, some of it's, you know, bale height and 13 tonne crop sweat. I'll just give that, give that a wee feed, just keep it, keep it going. But the stuff that's, you know, the poorest stuff that I said hadn't been direct drilled, so I just slow down a gear, give that just a little bit more. But I'm, I'm in the paddock, I'm, you know, directly on top of it. And that's, I think that's, you know, that's where we're sort of heading as well, that we need to, as farmers, take more ownership of what's going on on the farm. Not, not you, can, you can still have a consultant and you can still have your, you know, your PGG rep, your whoever else, but make sure that you get the information and you look at it and you think of you know could could I do this differently could I 
try one hectare of something else. Like, don't don't sell yourself short on believing their stuff is gospel. Mike, you um, <clears throat> you've done a lot of farming over the years. You've been a contractor for tow with a tow and fert. Uh, you've learned a lot about um, trial and error. You know, what is what is your comment around the iometer idea and, and kind of, because you've done the scientific trials as well, uh, even though they may not have been verified by the scientific community, they were science-based in that you practiced the scientific principles to come up with the results. But what's what's your sort of thoughts around what Georgie's been doing here? And, and we preach uh, about the little and often, about giving the plant uh, what it needs when it needs it. What's your thoughts around it. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in it. Um, did it myself when I was practicing contracting. Um, and if anyone's listened to Grant's podcast, our last one, he talks about colours. Colours tell a story, and colours tell a story. And as Georgie says, if you're in the paddock physically spraying it instead of paying Joe Bloggs to do the fertiliser or a helicopter plot it fly around, you're there. You're in amongst it, you can see it, you can look at it, and don't be scared to adjust what you need to do. Like Things that got me involved with, with tow and fur and liquid fertiliser back in 2013 was I got sick of people talking in averages. I don't, I don't mind being average. Yeah, I either like being very good or wrong. <laughs> um, and most of the time, if you're prepared to be very good, why be average? And the other thing about averages that strikes me as well is that if you're looking at an average on a farm and you've got, I don't know, let's say 120 hectares, average across the whole farm uh, is not the same in every paddock. No. Every paddock is different and that's why the likes of Alan Marks tests every paddock and, and multiple places within each paddock because different paddocks are needing different products at different times and so on and so forth. So th that rule of thumb that, that you know we can apply averages over a farm just really doesn't uh, hold water today, does it? I think when people talk in averages in New Zealand farming because it's easy for any farm level staff to do it. If it's an average Average cover. Anyone can do an average cover. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you're if you're looking at it from a fertilizer point of view, an average person can't do an average job on an average crop. It, you have to know what you're doing to get a good crop, economically and as cheap as you can. You have to be involved. You have to be there. You have to be checking it. You have to be looking at it. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, Georgie, some of your observations um, you've very kindly written down here for us, um, which is incredibly what did handy. I write? <laughs> what did you write? Um, and you've written down here your observations around the uh, use of the whole salmon fish hydrolysis. There's that yeah. word again. <laughs> you all know what I mean. Um, can you sort of talk to those a little bit about what you've seen, how that's um, impacted the farm, and what it's doing for you now? Yeah, so yeah, a lot a lot has changed um, since we've started using that that whole salmon. Um, but yeah, probably the key thing which we didn't quite realise when we first started using it is that it doesn't um, replace solid fertiliser. Um, so at the moment on the grass, we put on we do three cuts of baleage, and after those cuts, we put on you know a third of the amount of the solid fertiliser, and we give a third of the amount of the fish as well. And the cool thing is, is after four years, is that grass doesn't need any urea and we're still you know we're, we're growing a lot of grass um so yeah that would yeah so the yeah the the salmon doesn't replace some um, solid fertilizer um another good observation you can make pretty easily is that you'll get some worms back in your soil so the worms they're they're moving around they're digesting all sorts of stuff, breaking down the dung, um, you know, Aeration, taking down, bringing up. That, yeah. yeah, so from, like you just saying, the aeration, like we find that we don't dry out as much in summer, which was quite obvious. You said you drove fast and it was brown, brown, yeah. brown, green, brown, brown, brown. Yeah. Um, we try not to boast too much about that because we almost <laughs> feel guilty. Um, but yeah, so they're, yeah, they're aerating. So yeah, we don't think we dry out as much in summer and then those grass paddocks aren't as wet in winter either like we can you know graze a thousand lambs on a hectare for a day and move them on and pretty much sweet as. So we're holding water better basically. Yeah, just yeah. and just healthier like yeah. you've got all your gremlins doing the work and mm. and you and I when was that just just at the weekend I I was listening to something and they were going on about soil depth and roots and all that sort of thing so I was like right better get the spade out and go for a walk so yeah walked out into a paddock that is only a year old now so it was as I'd said earlier um, the young grass was planted in sort of that Feb March and I went out there and I thought oh, I won't find much out here and I found a 30 centimetre 
um, red clover, you know, big taproot, and that that was cut for baleage like two weeks ago. You'd think, oh well, that might get a bit sad, but no, that was down there doing its thing. Um, and that's what we noticed on your farm when we were out there this afternoon was we were in one particular paddock and. Mike said to me, uh, you know, look how much clover there is in here. And we took a couple of photos, which you'll uh, be able to find in the show notes. Um, but it's almost like a 60-40 mix, clover being 60%. You mentioned 50-50. <laughs> I reckon I put it at higher than that. Um, but you're talking huge amounts of clover. We're not putting on any urea. So the, the clover has to go down and look for its own urea in exchange with all, all the other... Um, grasses and things like that so it's it's doing its own thing um, we're not we're not turning off the the switch that it's got to go and get it itself it's you know if you're if you always do drive through then you're just gonna you know get it from the window and that's as far as you're gonna go your hands gonna reach out maybe a centimeter to grab it and that's that's what the that's what the grass is doing as well like a lot of these places unfortunately they they'll they'll they're getting there they're waking up but um, had it described to me as they're doing hydroponics, like they're just they're just farming that top five centimetres. And you know, when times get tough, when it's a wet spring, when it's a dry summer, which we've had in Southam for the last two years, um, you know, those those plants just don't hold on. Mm. The fish it, we've found that there's it's I don't know what it is, but it's got sort of insecticide properties. So with the kale, we haven't had to put any. But prior, we used to have to do. I don't know, it was probably January, an insecticide spray, and then again in March, an insecticide spray. January is probably for white butterfly and those sort of things, and then the March was probably more aphids, there's a bit more moisture came back in the system, <coughs> and now we don't have to um, do that anymore. I just do the little bit of fish often, and we, when it was getting a bit drier this, this summer, sort of the week before we had rain you could see the, the, the insects sort of go around the outside of the paddock and as it got the crop got more stressed they started actually going a little bit further into the paddock but they still you know they didn't get any more than 10 meters into the paddock and that's there's a few things going on there um, so one you've got your healthier soil you've got your healthier plant but also um, the oiliness of the fish is supposedly meant to suffocate some of the eggs as well so sort of slowing down the cycle in there I remember you told us last time that um, they the insects would come in and they'd look at all your kale and things and they'd think, oh, this is far too healthy for us, and they'd fly off to the neighbours who were growing a product that was more like junk food. Yeah, and <laughs> to, the, the one other thing that I quite often <clears throat> forget, because we don't see it so it doesn't pop into our brains very well, is um, we used to have quite bad um, grass grub you know, it gets to this time of year and you just go out there and lift up some grass and it just comes up like a big rug. And since we've been using the fish, that doesn't happen anymore. And look over the fence, the neighbouring property doing very similar stuff to what we're doing, just not using the fish, and he's, he's got grass grub quite bad. So, yeah, that's that's been another thing because grass grub is really hard to get rid of. Mm. Like we tried spraying before we were using the system and it's so hit and miss it's so hard to get it right so yeah that's another really cool thing about it so that's a that's almost a side benefit though isn't it yeah. that's something you've sort of found because i know the guys at fish it won't sort of um uh, put their name to that from the point of view that they they just aren't 100 percent able to sort of back that up scientifically so to speak yeah. and that that was um the those two sprays that we were doing on the kale that was costing about 230 dollars um, for the spray and for the the truck to apply it um, whereas now that's what the fish costs us per hectare so it's just that alone is just like sweet with that's break even and then like like we say like just get so much more out of it so yeah it's it's pretty cool to have it in our system one thing you also touched on i think was the stock preference and um, you reckon that it's actually uh, more flavorful and, and they enjoy eating the uh, the grass now than they did before yeah so i used to have it's gone now because it's gone into crop, but I had a two hectare paddock and the the two hectares had had, you know, the standard ferret and the standard urea, whatever else, um, but half had had the fish applied and half hadn't and come, you know, it would have been August, um, everything's a bit under stress, the cows had freshly calved and, yeah, it did, you know, five days up the side that it had fish 
and we got two days into the side that hadn't had the fish and the girls were starting to, when they were walking back to the cow shed, they were sort of getting a bit woozy and we just had to pull pin because there was, metabolic wise, the, again observation, the cows were telling us there's something that there's not in that grass that we have in that grass that's had that fish on it. So yeah, that was, that's, you know, farmer science in my mind. Yeah. We were talking with you earlier, Georgie, you were talking about um, some stuff you're doing with groups coming on farmers training sessions for environmental stuff. Do you want to touch on that? And about last winter, sort of a few a few farmers around our area, they were looking to get a catchment group in our little specific bubble up and going. Um, and we said, hey, there's a lot of people that want to come on farm and have a look at our wintering system. So we said, right, we can we can do that. We can tie that in. We can have a catchment day, but invite these other people that want to come along anyway. Um, and so just with, you know, we had a, the land sustainability people at Environment South and had helped us um, build the farm plan because in about 2015 we had to get a dairy consent to milk the 50 cows because it's non-consented up to 20 but we wanted to milk 50 cows so that was that was quite lucky for us in a way looking back because it was before people sort of got forced into doing these farm plans and and the owner does it and the staff don't know anything about it so that was we were involved in that process and it was before other farmers and yeah through that got to got build up a good relationship with a few of the people in Environment Southland which is our local regional council body um, and we invited them out, um, whoever of them wanted to come out for this um, catchment day we had looking at our wintering and I think we probably got about 8 or 10 people from Environment South and came out along with about 50 farmers and it was a, it was a really cool afternoon, um, everyone got a lot out of it but the biggest thing for me was that some of these people in Environment South and they just had never been given the opportunity to see farming up close. People were either too scared or hiding down the back road doing their wintering however they're doing it but we opened up our gate to them um, and they were like they were, they were just blown away and one of the guys said to me you know we're having a had a few um, beverages and barbecue afterwards and he said to me wow it was so amazing seeing a portable trough up close and I was like you're kidding me like you're you're helping but it's not their fault but he's helping people to make these winter plans to look after the environment and all that sort of stuff and I thought right well if I can if I can help um, these people to have a better understanding of the farm then they're going to be able to get on better with farmers and just the whole the, the whole knowledge sharing will just be easier because you know and you can you can get a lot of grants and all that sort of stuff if you want to put in a silt trap and all sorts of stuff so these people can be helpful to a farmer as well so long story short um, I wrote them a letter um, and I said hey you guys be interested in coming out and farm you know I think I think I suggested three or four times um, different different stages in the year and we can just just show you a bit of farming so yeah I invited out Environment Southland and also invited out MPI um, and those guys were really were really really excited to get given the opportunity because like they say they go to they go to the farmers who are struggling or who need help so the fact that We've offered them to come on farm and was, I think they're calling it like on-farm training. Um, so we had one, oh, it was probably early March. Um, and I just went through our winter plan, which is based on the criteria that MPI and Environment Southland set out. Just went through that with them, um, showed them around the farm, talked a little bit about, actually showed them the time for working, which a lot of them hadn't seen. Yeah, chucked a bit of urea in it and yeah had that working for them which yeah they were really excited about so yeah that's that's cool to I guess get given the opportunity to show off the farm to them but the fact that they're willing to give up their afternoon to um, come out and actually see it as well and there was yeah there was really good feedback from that they were super stoked to come out and um, yeah they'll have them I'll have them back out again in the middle of winter so we'll just pretty much like what we did last winter so shift a mob of cows for them and just just show them some little finer details up close and uh, then I'll probably do another one 
depending on the conditions, maybe talk a little bit about cultivation um, and just show them some calves, like just just basic, to us basic farming stuff, but for them, um, they see it in a textbook, but nobody nobody gives them the opportunity to show. So yeah, that's, that's something that sort of started up this year as well, which is all just sharing knowledge and Quite, quite fun, I suppose, in a scary way. Well, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, one of the big uh, knowledge sharers up in Canterbury at the moment is uh, Lion Farms, as, as you're probably well aware of, um, with the whole regenerative trial that they're running and, and keeping that completely open to um, uh, to everybody who, who bears to or cares to be interested in it. There is something about sharing knowledge when we look at um, actually helping each other as opposed to looking at someone as a competitor perhaps um, that you know is invigorating for us and, and things so that's that's awesome to hear and it's funny to think that you'd be educating the bureaucrats. Um, so touching on the wintering side of things there's a lot of bad press that we get around wintering and um, I mean I don't personally know a lot about it so I'll, I'll ask you the question what we see in the media and what you are doing when you talk about wintering are very very different can you give me an overview perhaps of, of what I'm seeing as a as a city dweller primarily and what you're doing as a farmer and what this sort of media outlets are, are, are spewing forth about wintering and how detrimental it is to the animals and the environment. Yeah, so probably the the biggest issue I guess you could say the farmer faces is that he's got his farm that he milks his cows on and that's paying him X amount of dollars and his winter crop is not going to return the same amount of money because it's only going to feed those cows for you know, so if he takes out a whole paddock, it might feed them for 30, 60 days, but then it's out of rotation for so long. So the conundrum those guys come into is that they want to grow a crop that gives the most amount of yield. So they might, with fodder beet, um, they might get up to 25 tonne fodder beet. So that's a lot of feed in a small area. So and and yeah, it's, it's hard to manage it and you have everybody knows about the risks of the height, the acidosis and all those things but the biggest thing about that is that they have so much feed in such a small area that they can't actually move forward fast enough so the the land area just has so much feed on it so that's where our system is we stick with the kale and just for argument's sake we're roughly getting half the amount of feed on the same amount of area so if you had a photobit crop just I'll just use roughly our measurements if you had a photobit crop because it's double the tonnage a hundred mobs of a hundred cow cows in one mob they're going to only be on you know 350 square meters because that's there's so much feed in there but our system because we have half the amount of feed they're on 762 square meters so those girls are a lot happier um, and they've just got a bit more room but we have to have more land that's in winter crop so if that's your dairy farm it's not going to return you the same amount of money because you've got double the amount of land so that's where that's the biggest issue with the winter grazing is that we need you need more land like in the um, the quorum sense guys have done a case study recently on uh, I think it's Mark Anderson South, South Otago way and he's doing bale grazing and I was comparing his size of land compared to our size of land it wasn't too uh, no it actually was it was like double the amount of land area again so we've got the fodder beat, they're on 300, we've got us on 700, he was on about 1300. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's, it's this land that's not as profitable and that's the hardest part. If you're just looking at the money, you're not going to want to go to the bale grazing. But that's where, as farmers and as we're progressing and talking to other people, we realise that if we do the bale grazing just for way off idea, um, you can come back into that pasture a lot quicker because it's grass. So there's all this there's all this stuff going on in the background, um, and coming back to our kale system, um, we don't the fodder bit would predominantly be fed in a in a long face. So for our our paddock structure, it'd be about 200 metres long, and the girls would only be able to move forward say one to two metres every day. So if you 
if you do a big step, that's probably about one and a half metres. So that's all those girls can move forward and that's roughly about the size that they can stand and sit. So if, if there's a shower of rain or if a bit of wind and they get blown up and down, they're just going to trash that area um, and that's I think where the biggest bit of bad name comes from. They got so much crop in this paddock they can't move forward fast enough, whereas come to our system, We've got half the amount of crop, as I explained, um, and that 200 metre face, we divide it into three. So we've effectively got three strips up the paddock, um, and we feed them in a block. So it's roughly about 65 metres wide, and they go forward about 11 and a half metres every day. So that's, that's quite a nice block. Um, and yeah, we, we do portable water, um, we have a back fence, a front fence, and then a front backup fence. And those short fences are all interchangeable. So if you had if you had a wet night where the girls have been where the girls are, you can just open the end of the electric fence right in front of their nose. They can move forward into today's break. You can close the break behind them, and then that back fence that's back in the mud from the day before, you can wind that up, but then that can now become your front fence, your your backup front fence, because they're all interchangeable. Mm. And that's and that's all part of our system as well. Everything has to work and has to um, has to be quite functional and try and, as best as we can, look after that soil. So, Georgie, if we look at your education then, um, and when I say education, your journey, I guess, is probably a better word. Where have you picked up your information from and, and the learnings that you've had over the last, what, four or five years? Um, well, it's sort of... I'm again lucky to have sort of Graham as a mentor with his his base of farm. Um, I do come from a vet nurse animal tech um, background, so qualified in that before um, Graham and Gail one day said, "Hey, you want to come work for us?" And I just knew that they're sort of distant family, so I'd I'd helped them a summer before, and I just knew that there was so much knowledge in Graham that they hadn't found a worker who he could give that to and I thought well you know they always say what what's meant for you won't pass you so yeah I sort of I thought bugger it let's let's give farming a go I, was, I really enjoyed you know working at a vet clinic and getting out on farm to you know do bits and bobs but when I actually started working on farm that was a a whole different thing like when I was at the vet clinic I thought a down cage just gave her a bag and she got back up and and then we yeah the first year on the farm and we'd We'd bought some, you know, these old, our milking cows are old cows and we'd, we'd taken them off the crop too soon and we had one girl, she went down for eight days, like, whew, that was an eye-opener and what a down cow really is. Um, so yeah, I've got, you know, animal health stuff in the background, um, but I think the, the biggest thing of learning is just talking to people, um, you know, like when ringing up Mike and, you know, quizzing him on stuff and, you know, today he came to service the machine, but we said, hey, what about um, elemental sulfur? And, you know, how I showed him a soil test and I said, you know, we've talked to a few people, we've got, you know, the readily, readily available stuff's real good, but what, you know, the organic compound of it, that's, that's pretty poor, like how do we tap into that? And so then Mike says something, or I think last year when I caught up with you, I said, oh, I've got, you know, we're getting quite a lot of docks, and you said, oh, have a look at the magnesium, like they can be, but since then, I've figured out that you get quite a lot of docks when you've got really compact soil, because yep. what the docks are trying to do is they've got the big taproot, so mm -hmm. they're trying to work for you. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a very roundabout way to answering your question, but, um, yeah, just, just talking to people, and then I've started... Um, doing some study myself, doing a diploma in agribusness and yeah, meet twice a week, uh, not twice a week, every second week for half a day. Um, there's about 10 of us in the class, most are dairy farmers, but they'll, you know, there's so much, you're there to learn, but like just having a yarn with them and seeing what's going on, like it's pretty cool to, it's, yeah learn that way as well just through other people's experience and getting involved in it. Yeah absolutely and I need to ask you too about the urea limitations and things because I know we didn't actually touch on this when we came to see you last April miraculously and I think at that point you were probably pretty low anyway but I understand that you may be even lower as far as your urea application goes so how have you or how have the regulations impacted you if at all um, and yeah what would you what's your opinion of those 
Yeah, it's, it's a hot debate to be honest because the dairy boys, they've just, the, that's their conventional ways. They need more grass, they put urea on, they follow the cows with the urea, so on and so forth because as we already mentioned, they're farming in that top five centimetres. So that, that mostly just grass is addicted to urea. The clover goes to sleep because it's just urea, urea, urea. Um, so those, you know, those guys are, they're getting over those 190 in limit now. Um, but for us, it sort of all, all comes back to when we started doing, doing that, um, doing that farm plan. Was in the Environment South and Farm Plan. There's a thing that says we recommend not to go over 150 kilos of N. And so for me, you know, coming coming from, you know, I grew up on a lifestyle block, but not coming from a traditional farm background, I said to Graham, hey, why are we putting on so much urea when they're telling us that, you know, we shouldn't really go over that? So we'd sort of already started to cut it back anyway with the solid urea, and then when we switched to liquid, you just halve it straight away, and then as you learn more, you just, you just learn that you don't need it, like, it's just turning things off, so, um, with with using this fish product, got um, talking to Stan Winter, so he sort of advises them, and it was probably quite a long-winded um, answer from Stan because he can get pretty technical and sciencey. But the end result was that um, he told me that in a two-week growing period for the kale, you only need 10 kilos of urea to grow 500 kilos. So that's where our basis of the 20 kilos of urea every three to four weeks comes from. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really want to go in there every two weeks, so just put a little bit more on and stretch it out. Um, and last year on the cow we put on 50 units of N, and this year so far on the cow I've put on 30 units of N. Um, it just doesn't need it. It's, it's, yeah, and that's that's on, so the cow's half the farm, and then the other half is grass, and that's had no urea. Earlier on in the podcast, you said, and I, I can't quote you exactly, but your words were something to the effect of, kale loves urea, or loves nitrogen. And now you're saying that you're actually putting on 30 kilograms per hectare, that it seems like um, barely marginal numbers at all. Just just the little and often, just, yeah. just using that, that liquid and and putting it on when it's growing, just you know, just and I I think possibly people are going to have a bit of a trouble with because they had this dry and so the the urea, the nitrogen in the soil sort of stops working anyway and then when you get the rain then it really shoots up so these guys that are um, looking to put animals on winter crops early, they're going to have to be really careful that they don't get um, nitrate poisoning. Yep. Um, I know there was problem last year, like one of the neighbours, he was he wanted to put his girls on say mid-May just to start doing a little bit of transition before they came to us um, and he had to like wait a week because the, the end levels were too high so I think the the, the um, guys using winter crop and trying to get on there early and, and maybe even in June if it stays quite mild um, those guys are going to have to be quite careful um, with the levels of end in their kale. Okay Georgie so we've um, we've heard about where you come from and what you're currently doing now what's your guys plan on farm going forward and where do you see it going? So we're sort of as I've mentioned lots of things in this podcast um, we're sort of looking sort of the region in a way um, just how we can improve that soil health more um, and incorporate that in particular into our winter grazing because the biggest thing we can see the problem there is from August till December is we have dirt in those paddocks um, and you know it is there's pretty minimal pugging but it still has had animals on it and it is still more or less completely bare um, so the, you know you've got you've got evaporation you've got runoff if there's a heavy rain event you've got perfect environment for weeds to grow which who likes weeds um, and and the compaction as well so just just the rain and the weather just settling it um, so we're sort of tossing around me and Graham obviously are tossing around ideas of how where we're at the moment so between 
we do three years of kale, which I don't actually know if many people do. I'd like to hear if some people do. Um, so yeah, the first year is we direct drill in the kale and then we do another crop of kale and then we do a third crop of kale and when it's coming out of kale, we do an oat catch crop which we bale and then we plant the young grass in um, autumn which I talked about before. But in those those two years when we're kale to kale, um, we're sort of tossing around the idea if we could maybe do like a, a radish or something like that in those, try and say just aerate it and then no till drill like some radish or something like that, definitely still looking into it um, and then just you know come back in again with a no-till drill and do some crimping and still playing around with the ideas but and then put the kale in then um, so we've actually had something growing when we predominantly in the past haven't had something growing but we can still get the um, we can still get the kale in the ground because that's that's what pays the bills effectively that's what winters the cows on so that's what we're going to try between those two transitions but then what I want to try, I don't know how many hectares I'm going to be allowed to try, um, but I don't want to do too much because I might get in trouble as well. So maybe a couple of hectares um, I want to try with our paddocks that are going from grass into kale. Um, sort of a, a few guys, again, around sort of North Otago on the Quorum Sense website, and I think they've got podcasts as well. Um, we've got a guy trying a mix of kale, phacelia, linseed, veach, plantain, rye corn and sunflower. Um, I'm pretty keen to give that a go and see what would happen with that. So my thinking would be that this, the kale rate is 4 kilos a hectare and that's currently what we're doing anyway. So my thinking with that is hopefully all those other bits and bobs will stop the weeds. And then once the girls have grazed it in winter time, see what comes away over that time when we've in the past had bare soil and then I don't know whether we might have to do a little bit of spraying um, or whether we can do this crimp rolling no-till drill, I don't really know, we're still, we're still um, looking into that but that's what's quite exciting, yeah, to, to go go again, go find something else new. Well, to, that's it, to go and, and we can see, obviously you can't see it when you're listening to the podcast, but you can see the kind of smile on Georgie's <laughs> face that she's excited about the things that she's going to be trying moving forward. And I think that's what's, um, you know, really invigorating about uh, about all this, which is terrific. So if we're talking to, to farmers who are listening to this and who perhaps are contemplating changes on their farm, what would you say to them in terms of getting started? Because often it's that first step that is the hardest one to take. Just talk to the crazy neighbour that's doing something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't like, honestly, in the last few months, like if probably every second day, either me or Graham's phone's been ringing like, what are you guys up to? Can we come have a look? Because, you know, it's, we're not doing any, we don't, we only see in our farm gate, we don't, you know, we're not on other people's farm, but other people are really starting to see what we're doing. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid just to pick up the phone and give someone a ring. Like we've, yeah, honestly, we've had probably at least a group of people once a week. Wow. Um, yeah, just come in to have a look and yeah, I know a few of them are keen to buy time verts as well. And <laughs> yeah, I probably need to get a commission for that or something. But yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, just, just talk to that crazy neighbour. Well, Georgie, look, we want to thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming out here. It's an absolutely um, uh, inspiring to be around your excitement and your energy. It's fantastic stuff. So thank you so much. Um, on behalf of Mike and I and the Tarnford Middle Form team, um, again, we really appreciate your time. And for you out there listening, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will have more information up on the uh, website with show notes, etc. Uh, check those out. Um, send us any questions as well. If there's anyone out there that wants any questions, I know Mike's had a couple of calls from our last podcast. Um, and we're always interested in topics that you guys want to learn about or you want to know more about or people you want us to potentially talk to on your behalf. We'd love to hear your suggestions and we'd love to uh, know more. So um, please get in touch. Thank you for listening. Georgie, thank you for your time again. Over and out. Thanks for having me.